Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, the ETSU's Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. It is uh, the 1st of February, uh, 2024. Everyone's complaining about how long January is and how it makes you feel all 31 days, but here we are on the other side in February. I've got a couple of fun little articles, uh, fun to me anyway, hopefully fun for you uh, to talk about today. The first one we're going to talk about uh, was published in, um, was I think it's in JCO, uh, yeah, Oncology Practice. So, so the uh, American side of clinical oncology, kind of their flagship journal is the Journal of Clinical Oncology. It's where the, the big clinical trials are published. There's Precision Oncology, which is all next generation sequencing is involved in the methods of everything in that um, in that uh, that journal, and then there's oncology practice, which is about sort of the bread and butter of taking care of patients with cancer, including some some original research. And this is an example of, of one of those original research about taking care of patients with cancer, looking at the basics, um, and, and maybe in this case asking uh, a, a good question and not accepting because that's the way we've always done it. Although maybe that wasn't the, the point of the study. So the title of this is use of peripheral. IV access in patients undergoing chemo for testicular cancer. This comes from researchers at the University of Colorado. And from 2005 to 2020, they looked at, at everyone that got testicular cancer, they got treated with chemo, that basically had access you know, to all their records. And uh, they had more than 1,000 people that got treated with testicular cancer at that time, but 150 met all the exclusion criteria of having all their chemo given um, uh, at the infusion center or in the or in the hospital where they had all their records, right? So they had to have all their records. They just got one cycle, like in the hospital, and then went to an outside provider. You know. So they have 154 people, and basically they're looking at, all right, did they have a central venous access device or a peripheral line? And the reason um, this is important, as we will see, um, will become clear when we talk about uh, the results of this. Um, you know, when I was a, uh, a trainee, um, I remember talking to my, my, uh, my preceptor, uh, my program director, Phil Hall at the time, and he said, um, same thing that I have heard myself say, back in my day, uh, he said, back in my day, we didn't see as much VTE in cancer patients as we do now, and I think the reason is now everyone has a port. Everyone has a central venous access device, whereas we used to do a lot more stuff through peripheral line. And there are some obvious advantages of a central venous access device, like a peripherally inserted central catheter, pick or a port, and that it's easier to hook people up to chemo, it's easier to blood draw, it's easier for the patients. The downsides of that, it does require surgical procedure to insert the port anyway, uh, and that can that can sometimes delay treatment. You know, you're on the inpatient service starting chemo for somebody. Uh, we'd start chemo today, but we have to wait for someone to put the port in, and that can sometimes delay treatment. And then the port is in, and it requires some care afterwards. It's a foreign device, and that can be prone to increasing the risk of blood clots, both at the site of the central venous access device locally and potentially uh, long-term. You know, you're, you're messing with endothelial cells, um, you've got surgery, you're, you're touching a couple of Verkaus triad here as far as VTE. So they have 92 people who got a central, centrally, uh, central venous access device for their first cycle of chemo, that's 60% of the cohort, and then 40% who got a peripheral IV. And they're basically looking at, all right, well, so what are the complications here of, of whether you have a peripheral line or a central line? Because the concern with a central line is a drug like cisplatin might extravasate and cause some problems. It's a very, very toxic drug. 
and uh, and we think that central line is going to be safer, lower risk of extravasation, and we've kind of moved towards doing that, not just for people on anthracyclines, which is like our worst vesicant oncology, but for for everyone. Um, and this this question this um, this study uh, looks at you know what are some of the complications of that. A couple things that we need to talk about here in our, our demographics. You have the folks that got the, the, the central line versus the peripheral line. The central line folks ended up getting more chemo on average by almost one cycle more. Okay, uh, They had the rates of thrombotic events if you had a central venous access device was 36% versus 7%. And that's just significant. So if you have the central venous access device, it's a much higher association with a thrombotic event. Now that could be a local thrombotic event or it could be a, you know a distant one like a PE or DVT. Now they are also getting more chemo and they're getting more chemo because they're often at a higher grade of cancer and a higher grade of cancer, more chemo, more cisplatin, that's also a higher rate of thrombotic complications as well. DVT rates 23% with a central venous access device versus 1.6%. Um, and then they looked at any complication, all right, and this is going to include you know, a, a superficial VTE peripheral, um, a local infection or phlebitis, sepsis, extravasation, necrosis after that extravasation, a PEDVT, a line-associated VTE, uh, or you couldn't get access in some way. And so the complication rate was 52% with the central access device versus 24% with the peripheral line. And again, complications, they're including distant PE and VT and complications, which could be line associated, could be cancer associated or chemo associated. But if you look at all this together, really they're asking the question, do we really need to put a central access device? Does everyone getting BEP uh, need to get a central line? And BEP, that's what 60% of these patients got. Uh, EP, uh, 25 to 14%. You know, it's this is an observational study. They're not controlling for these factors. Um, and they're not saying, you know, they're very honest in the, as the authors of their, their limitations of this study as an observational study. It's a single center, you know, maybe it's only one group putting in the ports and, and maybe that has some implications or, or maybe they're just really good at doing peripheral lines or, or whatever. Maybe the nurses are great here. Like that could, that could explain maybe some of this. Um, but in light of that publication, uh, some some fairly big names in testicular cancer, including Craig Nichols, uh, one of the nurses who uh, is at IU Cancer Center, which is one of the really the flagship institutions in what we know about how to cure testicular cancer. You know, basically have an, an accompanying editorial saying, you know, this is what we always used to do back in the day. We always used to do peripheral IV for these patients. They're young. They're young men. They're in their 20s. They don't have, you know, they, they're pretty hardy. You can do peripheral lines. You know, they'll, they'll tough out the sticks of the peripheral line. You know, one thing that's always um, interesting to me, whenever I meet a nurse for the first time, I have somewhat prominent veins on my hands, and it's remarkable the number of times I meet a nurse for the first time, and they comment on, oh, you'd be an easy stick, you know, uh, and as a pharmacist, the first thing I comment on in somebody are, are their medications that they're taking. Uh, surgeons, the first thing they ask a patient is, what's your surgical history? Um, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, useful that there's a nurse on this editorial talking about um, basically, together with some physicians asking the question, do we really need to do central venous access devices on everyone? Um, it's almost like stress ulcer prophylaxis in a hospital. We don't even, you know, we don't even ask what their risk factors are. We just put them on a PPI. Um, we don't, we don't ask, do they have actually risk factors for a stress ulcer? We just put them on it, and we don't always ask, does this person really need, you know, a surgical consult to get a port placed, or, you know, we don't really ask that. And, and I think. Um, this specifically is 
uh, talking about testicular cancer patients, a, a young group that's getting chemo for a limited number of cycles, three or four typically, with really high cure rates. Um, and um, that's a distinct population than maybe your your Burkitt lymphoma population. It's the same age, but uh, you know maybe a, certainly a more aggressive disease or, or your patients with colon cancer or breast cancer. But I, I do think it maybe is worth um, you know, thinking more about this, and hopefully we would, would love to see some more studies about this. Um, we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about, here's the newest study of how maybe it improves progression-free survival or overall survival, and, and maybe we spend too little attention to, to the fundamentals of taking care of patients with cancer. And let's do the fundamentals perfectly, uh, and then we can start to get really good at some experimental treatments. Which brings me to uh, another uh, publication in JAMA Oncology looking at vaginal estrogen therapy uh, and survival from breast cancer in women with early stage breast cancer. <clears throat> so this is um, a, a very British study. Uh, it is looking at uh, a population of uh, patients from Scotland and Wales and look with early stage breast cancer, about 50,000 women. Uh, between those two uh, nations with early stage breast cancer. And then look at pharmacy records, as with Nationalized Health Service, they can pretty reliably know who's getting what uh, and who was getting uh, vaginal estrogen. Um, so, so patients with breast cancer on tamoxifen or gonstrelin or AIs are going to have you know, vaginal symptoms of menopause with vaginal dryness that can lead to dyspareunia, which is a fancy name for pain on sexual intercourse. And that can affect quality of life. And we don't want to use systemic hormone replacement therapy uh, that would negate the effects of tamoxifen. But there, there have been some questions about topical estrogen or intravaginal estrogen. Can this treat those, those, uh, you know, those, those medication-induced symptoms of, of, of menopause, those vaginal symptoms, without having a detrimental effect on the breast cancer? You know, you would think some of that, te that estrogen is going to be absorbed systemically, and is that going to potentially increase the risk of breast cancer recurrence? And, and this looks at that, and they, they've got. Um, of these 50,000, uh, 5,000 to 6,000 were on, or five or so, 5,000 had a breast cancer-specific death. And they don't see a higher risk of breast cancer-specific death if you were on estrogen therapy or not topically. Now, if you have a patient, this is an observational study as well, and so the types of people who the physicians, who know of the, the theoretical risks of, of intravaginal estrogen or vaginal estrogen, they're probably more likely to do that in those who are lower risk. Uh, or in those that have uh, more severe symptoms. Um, so this doesn't prove that it's safe, but it is adding to what I think is a growing body of evidence that we're feeling more comfortable doing, uh, you know, whether it's uh, vaginal estrogen, vaginal tablets, or vaginal or estrogen creams in these women for these effects. Um, it would be, I would really love to do a deep dive on this, uh, to look at everything else that's been published on this. Uh, it would be, if it hasn't been done, a great, a great time for a good you know, review article for, a, a, you know, an oncology or pharmacotherapy journal on the risks um, that are known of this and, and how safe we feel it is based on what's been published. Okay, last thing to talk about. This has been on my, my desk for a while, and I've been trying the way to, to work it in. This was a study published in, uh, actually in October 2023 in, in uh, PLOS Biology. The title here, this is from researchers at University of Wisconsin in, in Madison. Diverse microtubule targeted anti-cancer agents kill cells by inducing chromosomal missegregation on multipolar spindles. Uh, so what is in the textbooks and what I just taught students not too long ago is paclitaxel paralyzes. Paclitaxel promotes and paralyzes. Promotes the assembly of microtubules but then 
paralyzes them that way and prevents disassembly, and that causes death in emphase, causes mitotic arrest, and they're no longer dividing. Apparently, it's, all, it's a very dense pharmacology uh, in this paper, but apparently because of some new you know, lab techniques and, and some diagnoses uh, and, and imaging and stuff like that, they were able to see that if you put some breast cancer cell lines in a lab and expose them to paclitaxel at what they think are like normal concentrations uh, in breast cancer cells from, the, from like uh, real human exposure, is that you actually get different poles. So if you think of what happens in the emphase and mitosis, you have two poles, like the cells pull in different directions in, into your daughter cells. What this is suggesting is this doesn't only have to happen during my, in the M phase. It can happen in between phases as well, and that you'll get sometimes three poles or four poles or five poles, and that leads to this chromosomal instability, and that can lead to cell death by itself without causing mitotic cell death. So I'm quoting, the results suggest that future drug discovery efforts aimed at recapitulating the efficacy of antimicrotubule agents should not focus on agents that induce mitotic arrest, which is how we thought taxanes and all our vincas work, but instead focus on uh, chromosomal instability inducing drugs. Um, and these drugs have the advantage of exhibiting potential utility as single agents uh, and maybe in combination with other things. So from a big picture standpoint, we thought we knew how paclitaxel worked and what this, this basic science study, this pharmaceutical science study and pharmacology study suggests is there's more to it than that. Uh, and, and we don't always know that. And by revisiting things we think we know with new techniques, we can learn some new stuff and that might, that might influence future uh, drug development. So real interesting, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't understand all this study. Uh, like I said, uh, one of my pet peeves as a pharmacist, and if those of you who are pharmacists listening, my guess is this has happened to you, is is uh, somebody has introduced you as a pharmacologist. Uh, I'm not a pharmacologist. Pharmacologist did this study. I'm a pharmacist. Pharmacology was my favorite subject in pharmacy school, but I also enjoyed pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and pharmaceutics, learned about dosage forms and drug delivery systems. And then the coup de grace for, for me and for many of us that are clinicians uh, as pharmacists is, is pharmacotherapy and using drugs to take care of patients. Um, and pharmacology is a part of that. Uh, but, I, but I am not a pharmacologist, I am a pharmacist. Uh, but really enjoyed uh, reading what I could from this study and, and the questions that it made me think about about what else we might learn uh, as we get more and more scientific techniques and what we can learn about how the drugs that we use on a day-to-day -day basis, how they work. Uh, again, uh, really understand the fundamentals perfectly uh, to help us to do the best we can with what we have at, at our disposal. Uh, we owe it to our patients. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on the app formerly known as Twitter at PharmDNib, and you can follow the podcast uh, on X, Instagram, and Threads at OncoFarmPod. I promise at some point I'm going to start tweeting out uh, the episodes as they come out. Um, but thank you all for, uh, for your listens and likes and all that stuff, and um, we'll be back next week with another episode. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm -hmm.